welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you're interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today I am chatting with Alex Marr about 70 Times 7, a true story of murder and mercy. Alex is the author of Witches of America, which was a New York Times notable book and editor's pick. She has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award in feature writing and she is the director of the feature-linked documentary, American Mystic. She lives in the Hudson Valley and New York City. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water, once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. If you enjoy this podcast, I have another podcast that you will enjoy as well. A Bookish Home takes you behind the book with best-selling authors. Add to your TBR list while getting the inside scoop on the winding road to publication. Laura Zaro kopinski is a librarian, mom, writer, and lifelong bookworm who is striving to create a culture of reading wherever she goes. She interviews a different author each week, and her episodes drop on Wednesdays. This spring, her podcast features Eleanor Shearer, author of River Sing Me Home, Maggie Smith, author of the memoir You Could Make This Place Beautiful, and Julia Kelly, author of The Lost Girl, as well as several other fabulous authors. Her show can be found on all major platforms, and I hope you will tune in. Welcome, Alex. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here to talk about your new book, 70 Times 7 with me. You've been getting all sorts of wonderful reviews that has to make you very, very pleased. Oh, it's a relief. After five years of researching and writing, you know, it's just great to have this book finally out in the world. I bet so. 
It's such a touching and sad story. Before we dive into my questions, could you tell me a little bit about 70 Times 7, A True Story of Murder and Mercy, please? Yes, absolutely. So in 1985, in Gary, Indiana, a 15-year-old girl named Paula Cooper, uh, along with a couple of her classmates, all girls 14 to 16 years old, they talked their way into the home of an elderly Bible teacher named Ruth Pelkey. The idea was to steal anything she might have of value in the house, cash, whatever. But the situation escalated, and Paula ended up stabbing Mrs. Pelkey to death. It was a shocking crime. It it truly just sent shockwaves through the city of Gary, through Lake County, through the whole state of Indiana. Paula, because she played the greatest role in the crime, was sentenced to death. And her death sentence ended up getting attention as far away as Europe, the Vatican. It's really an incredible story. But part of what brought me in was the fact that a few months after her death sentence, her victim's grandson, Bill Pelkey, chose to publicly forgive Paula for killing his grandmother. Um, And this went against the wishes and the opinions of his family, his friends, his coworkers, his congregation. It was seen as a very extreme stance to take, and it set a number of events in motion. I just can't even imagine being in his shoes and how all of that must have unfolded. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But first, how did you learn about Paula Cooper and her case and then what happened subsequently? I was doing some more general research into the criminal justice system. I was looking specifically into violent crimes committed by women because they're far more rare. And I stumbled across this case. And uh, at that point, I, I dropped everything else because this story raised so many questions for me. As soon as I started looking into it, I realized that I wanted to spend a lot of time and that this, this case deserved a very deep dive. So after you spent some time looking into it and you said you immediately knew you wanted to write about it, how did that look? I mean, I'm assuming it took you five years, so I'm assuming you did not expect it to take you five years. Well, I, I learned later on that, <laughs> that uh, books, you know, nonfiction books that are really immersively researched like this one and have a similar scope, that they tend to take about five years. At the time, I was pretty naive about that fact. So, you know, I thought, okay, well, two and a half years, three years, let's see. But, you know, it just took its own course. And I had to take a deep breath multiple times along the way and just accept this was a big story. I had to get it right. And in this case, it really involved talking to as many people as I could. And, you know, I I interviewed probably about 80 people for the book. And there was a core group of a dozen or 20 people, you know, who I visited again and again and again, hours of conversation. And my process is such that I I, I really try to sit down face to face with people just because that's a way to have a more intimate conversation and to get a better read of someone and for them to hopefully begin to trust that I'm looking to tell the most accurate story possible. So the the first piece of it, though, was looking up Bill Pelkey's number and giving him a call and just introducing myself and saying, you know, hey, this is a little out of the blue, but 
Can we talk a little bit about that decision you made years ago? And I knew after that hour-long conversation over the phone that we had to meet. And um, pretty soon after that, I was flying to Indiana. I think you're exactly right in terms of interviewing people face-to-face because you can see their facial expressions. You can tell if they're nervous or anxious or maybe not necessarily telling the truth. You can gather a lot from face-to-face conversations that you can't gather on the telephone. Yeah, I think that's true. And there's just a flow to it. And people can really get a read on you as well. And it, it helped me also to establish, you know, look, I'm I'm a writer who's working on a book. This is a long-term process. I'm not rushing you. You know, let's take the time that this needs. Most people, especially in relation to a violent crime, if they've been asked questions about it by the press, it's going to be newspaper reporters who are on a very tight deadline. So their approach just has to be a little bit more aggressive, a little bit faster. This is a different, you know, I really wanted people to know this is a different kind of storytelling. So, you know, little by little, let's get into it. I, I also really, you know, and, and, and you can see this in reading the book, I really wanted to get a sense of where the main players were coming from, how they grew up, you know, what faith they were raised with, what kind of beliefs fed into this moment. You know, I'm fascinated by where we get our guiding principles in life when, when you end up in an extreme situation and you're trying to figure out how to handle that, how to respond. So in Bill's case, in particular, he was raised conservative Baptist, fundamentalist Baptist. When this happened, when this terrible tragedy took place, his family members responded, you know, with a, with a call for vengeance. They wanted the death penalty in this case. He, however, diverged from them and said, you know, I think that my faith suggests that I'm supposed to forgive. And I think that's how my grandmother would have felt. So I'm going to respond in that way, right? And you had the prosecutor, Jack Crawford, who went for the death penalty in this case. He was an aggressive, tough-on-crime prosecutor who ran Lake County for more than a decade. He was a Democrat, really related to the Kennedys. He was raised Catholic. And, you know, there's this famous kind of Catholic pro-life stance that also means being against the death sentence. In his case, he worked around that, you know? As prosecutor, his tough-on-crime stance took precedent over his faith. You know, that there were a number of moments in the book where that became kind of uh, just a secondary theme that I kept checking in with. You know, how, how, often, how often are we walking the walk in terms of how we were raised or, or our guiding principles? And how often do we diverge from that? Well, and you dive deep into the idea of what constitutes justice and how we approach justice and how that can be very different for different people. Absolutely. You know, in there's a very short prologue to the book in which I, you know, I, I say that one question I was asking myself throughout this process was, you know, how do we define justice? Is there even a definition that we can all agree on in this country? Justice, I think, looks different to a lot of different people. One aspect of our system that I, I truly had not given a thought to in the past that, that started to hit home in spending time with this story is the fact that in any crime, in any courtroom, there are two families, one on either side. 
but you know they have a tremendous amount in common a lot of the time. Bill Pelkey in choosing to forgive and reach across the aisle, he did that in part because he had seen Paula Cooper's grandfather at her sentencing hearing and how, you know, the man just broke out in hysterics when the death sentence was handed down for his granddaughter. He saw Paula Cooper's sister. You know, he was aware that she had a family just like he did. And he came to see the death sentence as something that was actually punishing them and making victims out of them when they had done nothing wrong. So the sense that, you know, there's a common humanity among the people on either side of any given crime is something I'm, I'm a lot more sensitive to now. And, and I, it's something I talked a lot about with Rhonda, Paula's, Paula's older sister, who hadn't spoken about the crime for, for decades. She, she really was silent. And, um, chose after three years of me gently trying to approach her, she she decided she made the brave choice to to share some of her thoughts and experiences. Well, and I think this is not a spoiler, but and she was very skeptical of Bill and his choices. Oh, absolutely. You know, you have to imagine the situation that that everyone was in. Paula was 15 when she was brought to the police station for this terrible crime. Rhonda was only a few years older. She was, uh, I think she had just turned 19, or maybe she was 18 and a half. She rushes down to the police station and, and is totally overwhelmed. At first, she assumes that there's got to be some kind of mistake. And she, she was there in the room when Paula confessed to all of it. Her life changed forever that night when her sister confessed. She chose to stand by her sister. Their parents left the state. They left the state when a death penalty charge was brought against their child. And so Rhonda, just a few years older, had to suddenly, you know, she was partying at night. She was doing normal teenager things. She had to suddenly change her life and try to represent her sister. She was invited to go on 60 Minutes. She put on like grown-up makeup, fixed her hair, tried to look really like someone people might take seriously. You know, and I saw that interview and it's so heartbreaking because she's trying to explain on national TV that they grew up in such a chaotic circumstance. You know, I think, I think it's really, it's, it's really remarkable. Her anger towards the Pelkies was pretty much equal to the Pelkies anger towards Paula. You know, everyone was just incensed and Bill wanted death for Rhonda's sister when she got that sentence. It, it took a few months for him to change his mind. So at first she thought, You're, are you telling me that guy who was in the courtroom looking smug, totally happy, celebrating the death sentence suddenly cares about my sister? So there was, there, there was a real lack of trust and suspicion on both sides. And it was also exacerbated by the fact that Paula and Rhonda were two young black women. The Pelkies were white. And Gary has a history of very pronounced segregation, plenty of racial tension in, in that area. So for her, she thought, you know, there's this older white man who suddenly wants to forgive. Is there some ulterior motive? Is he going to turn on us? Is he trying to visit Paula on death row and, and cause trouble in some way? And it took a long time for trust to build up. Or is he benefiting personally by coming out with this stance? 
Yeah, I think there were a number of questions. The prosecutor also publicly was pretty suspicious of Bill's motivations. He was definitely not pleased that there was a member of the Pelkey family that months later was coming out writing letters to the editor, giving interviews to the press in Indiana, the press, you know, from Italy or Germany or, you know, all across Europe, saying that he disagreed with this, with the results of this case. That was extremely inconvenient to the prosecutor. And and in general, what I discovered is when you have family members who don't have the same agenda that the prosecutor does, and, and yet the prosecutor claims to be speaking for their their deceased loved one, right? It really throws a wrench into the works. There is not room in our justice system as it stands for the victim's family members to say, well, you know, we don't we don't want severe sentencing in this case. It doesn't help, it doesn't give us peace, and it's not what our loved one would have wanted. Like our system does not, it, it doesn't uh, absorb competing narratives in that way. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so um, that was another aspect of this that was really fascinating to see play out. It asked a lot of questions for me about how our system still functions. Well, and you mentioned that Paula and Rhonda's parents left the state after Paula was convicted, or actually, I guess when they were trying to convict her, but they were terrible parents from the beginning. I mean, it wasn't like this was a break with how they had behaved in the past. Yeah, this was, you know, there there was, what I discovered in, in talking to Rhonda was, you know, I got a picture of two young girls where the father in the house was physically abusive when he was actually even around. They had a mother who drank too much, worked long hours. The older sister was raising the younger sister. You know, there there was a there was like this little world they tried to create between the two of them where they were very close and you know they did each other's hair and watched the three stooges on TV together and played Jackson 5 records and had this little happy friendship when their parents weren't home and Rhonda played the mother and all of that just came crashing to a halt. This this crime really it just changed their lives forever uh, for obvious reasons. But it also, you know, it, it became so hard for Rhonda to explain, like, you don't understand there. I know my sister and there's so much more to her. This isn't to say that to minimize Paula's crime in any way, but I, I worked really hard to try to take back some of, some of this other side to young Paula Cooper and, and put that in the book so that readers could could start the story with a sense of her as a full human. Hopefully, that's how people will feel. It is absolutely a horrific crime, and it's hard to keep that in the forefront of your mind as you're reading your book, because if you focus only on that, it is really difficult. I mean, she was so young, but it's terrible. But I think if you look at her family history and think of the things they witnessed and what was happening in their home, you just have to wonder, obviously, much of that factors into her behavior. And you just have to wonder how that contributed. That's definitely, I mean, I think it's definitely a factor. It's not something that was given as much weight back in the 80s. Right. You know, abuse in the home, mitigating evidence. And, you know, at first, I didn't really think I needed to spend much time getting to know the prosecutor, because I thought, you know, he made the decisions he made, and I can move forward with the story. But in in sitting down with him in person for the first time, I realized I wanted to talk to him a lot more. And I, 
I also really tried to get into the psychology of someone in his position. Being a prosecutor of any county in this country is a position of enormous influence. You are determining who gets charged when and for what, you know, how serious the charges are. That's enormous power. And he was a relatively young guy, still very ambitious. He ran on a tough on crime platform. And one of his sort of like the guy who was the deputy prosecutor who was his number one bulldog at the time, I I talked to him as well. And he said, you know, we were all so young and so gung ho. We all wanted to make names for ourselves. And once you go for the death sentence in one case, the next one that comes along, if it's in any way as serious of a crime, you, you've, you've set a precedent and you keep being, you've, you've put yourself in a position where you have to keep going for the death penalty because otherwise you'll be criticized for going soft in this situation, right? So it just, there was this feeling amongst these kind of young buck prosecutors in Lake County that they're, you know, this, this thing snowballed. So you end up with four young girls and one of them gets sentenced to death. So the the story then kind of shifts, you know, clearly when when Bill decides to forgive Paula, but also when Paula's case enters the appeals process because her attorneys at that point are much better equipped, they're more serious individuals and they see the case from a very different perspective. And little by little, I, I tried to create kind of the, the, the legal thriller part of the storyline is what I think of it as, because her case and some of the people working on it end up continuing to do that work, uh, not just to get Paula off death row, but to try to bring an end to the death penalty for kids in America. And the story you know, in this book ultimately connects the dots all the way up to that uh, in 2005 the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately ruled the death penalty for kids unconstitutional. And um, to me, it was so fascinating to see how the various players in connection to the Cooper case connect up with that incredible moment. Could you believe when you started this and then you learned that it was 2005 when that became something that wasn't okay to do? That was mind-boggling to me. You know, I think I was aware of the ruling. I must have been when it happened, but it had no reality to me. You know, sometimes we read about these Supreme Court decisions and it doesn't hit us right away how it's going to impact our lives. This was a scenario where the closer I looked, I I just thought, oh my God, that's a little over 15 years ago. It's just so striking. And when Paula Cooper's death sentence was handed down, there was very little awareness that we actually sentenced young people to death in this country, not just among the public, but members of the legal profession. So I ended up spending time with a, a law professor named Victor Stribe, who's also an attorney, who around that same time had started just out of curiosity, he kind of stumbled across the fact that, you know what, we have the death penalty for juveniles and there's so little data on this. He did the really hard work of just compiling data over time. And he realized, ultimately, that we have executed more than 300 kids in this country for a range of crimes. And since the 1970s, we have sentenced to death more than 200 kids. So this is not a problem from colonial times. This is something far more recent. And so he was doing that research He ends up being invited because of that work to 
to join Paula Cooper's defense team. And he takes part in making an argument on her behalf before the Indiana Supreme Court, right? And that is part of how her sentence ends up being commuted. And the same man then moves on to a number of other Supreme Court cases dealing with the death penalty for kids. And, you know, it was, it was so thrilling to see all these links come together over these five years of work. So Bill Pelkey as well, his story continues to evolve past Paula's case in that, you know, once her sentence is commuted, he still wants to be of use. He wants to be relevant. He's now really on fire around this issue. And without giving away too much, I will say he ends up one by one finding other murder victims' family members around the country who also chose to speak out against the death sentence in their cases. And a kind of collective starts to form. So that's, that's another storyline that that uh, stretches out from the Paula Cooper case. So for me, you know, at the heart of the book, there's this relationship between Paula and Bill that's so surprising. But then the story just continues to radiate outwards. And that was truly exciting for me. I'm always fascinated when I read a book like yours, because I know how much research goes into it. And then you talk about that at the end. But the part that fascinates me the most is how you get all of that research, all of those interviews and details and newspaper articles and videos into a coherent story. That must have taken a ton of time to streamline it or to get it into a narrative that makes sense. Because as you just mentioned, there are many threads. Oh, Cindy, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. Oh, truly. You know, I mean... I didn't meet an archive. I didn't love, you know, it's just, there was just, there were boxes and boxes of papers. And at one point I saw, I found myself with a, a stack of, I don't know, maybe 20 unlabeled VHS tapes of home video footage of an event from 1993 that I really needed to look at. And guess what? You end up looking at all 20 of these VHS tapes and you just do what you've got to do, you know? And I think, I keep thinking in the process of my work, I keep thinking of the word conjure, you know, just that the, the job is partly if you want to write immersive nonfiction, literary nonfiction that that hopefully reads almost like reading a good novel, you've got to try to conjure up that moment. And the way that we really get inside a moment and experience it is, you know, it's the little details, what someone was wearing that day, what the weather was, you know, the feeling someone remembers of of that moment. It's not it can't just be the facts. And so that's how you end up driving yourself truly nuts, hunting all these details down. But I met so many incredible people along the way that that definitely was the part of it that kept me going. I bet. Well, I'm impressed that you were able to get it into a fascinating book that read like fiction, but was nonfiction. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. Let's talk quickly about your title, 70 Times 7. Yes. So. I love this title personally because for some people it may seem a little bit mysterious. For others, they'll get the reference. It is a reference to a moment in the Gospel of Matthew when the disciple Peter asks Jesus, basically, you know, how many times are you saying I'm supposed to forgive someone who harms me seven times? And Jesus says, not seven, 70 times seven. 
you know, and I, I, I love that moment. It's, it's, it's a moment in the Bible that means a lot to Bill Pelkey, and that's why I chose it. But it's also as if Jesus in that moment is saying, you know, you should be prepared to forgive an infinite number of times, an enormous number of times. And that's the challenge. And I think that it's almost unfair, right? Like, is that something any of us are capable of? Are any of us capable of forgiving like Bill did in that situation? You know, I still don't personally have that answer for myself. And I think that's okay. There are characters in the book, you know, Bill's wife at the time, ultimately, she tries really hard, but she cannot relate to his stance on the death penalty. And and I think it's okay for us to struggle with these big questions, but I think that the story of Bill and Paula's relationship definitely challenges us to take a moment and wonder, you know, what is the right thing? Is there room for mercy in our justice system? And is it ultimately maybe a healthier way to go? Absolutely. Because if you can forgive, in your own mind, you have reconciled with whatever happened. And if you don't, and you're just seeking vengeance and retribution, it just stays with you and it just eats you from the inside. That was definitely the take of a number of the murder murder victims' family members I spoke with, that they ultimately forgave because it gave them the freedom to move forward. You know, they didn't feel themselves being eaten up by so much anger, but it's it's a complicated process. You know, it it, it was incredible to to try to explore that inside of the book. Yes, it is something that is much easier said than done. I agree completely. But I have just found nothing to the scale by any stretch. But when I can forgive someone for something versus just constantly having it in my head and frustrated and mad and upset that I do better and I'm healthier and able to move forward myself, because most of the time it's stuff you don't have any control over. I, I mean, I, th- I think it's a, sto- you know, that aspect of the story is definitely relevant to the smaller things in our lives as well. You know, just daily life stuff, issues we have with our friends and family. I thought a lot about just how how challenging it is right now where, you know, the country is extremely divided and it seems like there is, at times it feels impossible to reach across the aisle. You know, uh, this this made me feel like maybe the risk is 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 worth it. I kept thinking what would have happened if this had happened now versus when it happened. And I thought, oh, with the internet, I can't even imagine. Oh, well, <laughs> I, you know, social media is, uh, is, is a force to be reckoned with. And there were parts of me that were, you know, were grateful that uh, this story was set in 1985. You know, it, a lot of the action happens in the 80s and 90s. And it's, it's just a, the, the internet did not come into play. Thankfully. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, I'll tell you, I read a great novel that's a new novel. It came out uh, just a few weeks ago called Take What You Need by Idra Novi. It's just terrific. It is a really fast-moving novel about a woman who's from a town in rural Pennsylvania who left and had a life in the city, and she's drawn back to that same town after the death of her stepmother. She discovers that her stepmother has left behind these mysterious steel sculptures that she's filled her house with. 
And it reveals this side to someone she was close to that she didn't know that this woman had secretly tried to become an artist while staying in this hostile small town environment. There's a younger neighbor who's a young guy who there's a sexual uh, moment of sexual intrigue with. It's just it's just a fascinating, very taut kind of uh, novel that asks a lot of questions about you know can you ever really leave the place that you come from? And do we ever really know the people who we love and we think we're closest to, or do they sometimes have a secret self? I love those type of books. And I had just recently read something about that one. So it sounds like I need to add it to my list. Oh, absolutely. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Your book was absolutely fascinating, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation about it. Good luck getting it out into the world. Thanks so much, Cindy. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.